Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Park Church Podcast. I am your host, James Lapine, and you probably didn't know this about the show, but uh, I always record the interview first and then come back around and record the intro and outro so I can uh, tell you who the guest is and what we talked about and uh, get you excited about the show. Today, we're not going to do that. And this is also going to be probably the nicest sounding recording of any of the shows so far. That's because I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas at Family Life Studios. Today, talking with my dad, Bob Lapine. This, this is where I come in and say, yeah, just say, say hey, hey, son, yeah, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think uh, at, some, at some point, every uh, radio guy has to have his dad on, on the show, right? I don't know that I, well, I, I guess, was my dad ever on with me? No. I was probably not doing much live radio uh, before my dad died, so never had a chance to have him as my guest, so... It, it's an honor to be on the podcast. I'm glad that we can yeah, start, the, start the tradition. Um, we uh, we basically did zero prep for this show, uh, but uh, my dad is a, uh, a radio pro. Uh, he's been doing the, the Family Life Today show with Dennis Rainey for... 24 years. 24 years. Uh, and he's also... Uh, what's that? And even before that. And the producer says, and even before that. That's so, right. yeah, he's been doing radio for 40 years, coming my, up on it. My first uh, job in radio was in 1997. I was an intern, college intern, and I, I was at News Radio 740, K, KRMG, KRMG, News Radio 740 in Tulsa. Okay, and, and what did you do there? Uh, I, I covered news stories. I was the news anchor, sometimes on a morning drive doing news across from... Uh, the the morning man. I mean, if you're on a morning drive, you've kind of hit the the big thing in radio. So, to be right out of the gate and be able to be in morning drive was a big deal. And uh, that was my internship in college. I went from there to a radio station that played dentist office music, the 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 symphony, the strings. You know where they play Beatles songs, but done easy listening style. Oh, wow. And every 15 minutes, I would come on and say. Fresh as a rose, Queen Stereo ninety five, and then I'd get right back into music. Yeah. So that was my next job, and I did that Friday night and Saturday night, from ten at night until eight in the morning. So wow. it was the overnight shift, music to put people to sleep, and music to put you to sleep. Queen <laughs> Stereo ninety five. That was my announcer voice. And then from there, I went to work for a news talk station and was a news reporter and an anchor for about a year and a half. And then I got involved in Christian radio. And it was just when Christian radio was starting to have more impact in the culture than it had ever had. Christian radio, when I was growing up, had always been people screaming and begging for money Mm. or Southern Gospel quartets that could almost find the right harmony, but not quite. And I never thought I wanted to work for a station like that. And then I heard Chuck Swindoll, Hmm. and I thought, well, he's intelligent and articulate. He doesn't scream. He doesn't beg. If there were more guys like that on the radio, you couldn't make a format out of this. And I wound up working for a station where we found guys like that, John MacArthur and Dr. Dobson and Charles Stanley and people who have been in the forefront of Christian radio for years. I worked uh, at a station like that for five years. We were also at the very beginning of the contemporary Christian music phase. Amy Grant's first album came out in 1980. We played that on our station. 
and the Imperials and David Meese and um, your listeners' parents would know some of these names. <laughs> and so it was an all-music station, and uh, and that's how I got started doing Christian radio. Okay. And so you did that ten years? Five years, Five years. in Tulsa. Okay. And then Phoenix, Sacramento. Then we moved to San Antonio, where you were born. Yes. And um, I was seven years in San Antonio. Okay. And that's where I started doing a call-in talk show every day on on the station and loved doing that. I loved the spontaneous nature of call-in radio and uh, you have to think on your feet. You've got to be up on what's going on. And so uh, I, I enjoyed doing that. So and people people are calling in with, I've got this thing going on. Whatever topic you're addressing that day. Okay. So we're talking, one day we're talking a theology topic. The next day we're talking about stuff that's going on um, in the entertainment world or stuff that's going on in politics or just I could go wherever I wanted to. It was called Cross Currents. Mm. And the idea was that we were bringing the cross to bear on current events. Cross Currents. Wow. How about that? Huh? Nice. So I did that for... Uh, for seven years, and one of the guests I had on by telephone twice during the seven-year period was an author from Little Rock named Dennis Rainey, who headed an organization called Family Life. Mm. And we had him on to promote the Family Life conference that was coming to San Antonio. And he was a decent guest, and he remembered that I was a better-than-average host. Yeah. And so when Family Life Ministry started thinking about having a daily radio program, he called me and said, would you want to move to Little Rock? And I said, why don't you move to San Antonio? <laughs> and it didn't work. So we wound up, as you know, back in yeah. 1992, moving to Little Rock when you were four years old. Mm-hmm. Much to the chagrin of my older sisters. Yeah, you didn't care much at no, four. No. But Amy, your sister, was 11 when I took her out. And she's the only one that I really had to break the news to because Katie who was eight at the time, Katie was just going to respond however Amy responded. So I took Amy out for yogurt, and uh, I said, uh, hey, Mom and Dad have been thinking about this, praying about this. We really feel God is calling us to leave San Antonio and to go to Little Rock to help with this radio program. And she just started crying. Oh. And I, my heart as a dad was breaking, and I said, honey, I'm so sorry. And Amy looked up and she said, well, Dad, if this is what God's calling you to, that's what you have to do. And I thought, where did this kid come from? <laughs> right? I mean, it was just a, the, the answer every parent hopes to hear. Mm-hmm. And driving home, I said, did you have any idea what why I was taking you out for yogurt? And she said, I thought we were going to have the sex talk. <laughs> and I said, wait, wait, what do you know about that? And maybe that's next week we go out and have that talk. Yeah, so... That's how we wound up in Little Rock. <laughs> okay. All right. And then, you, yeah, like you said, you've been uh, here at Family Life for 24 years now. And you've also, it seems like everywhere you've gone, you've either been in leadership at church or starting a church or uh, pretty involved. Church was important from the beginning for mom and me. Um, when we started dating, we spent three years trying to find a church to go to. Now, it's not because we're just really picky, although we probably are. You are. <laughs> but but it was also because we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a weird time in the history of evangelicalism in America. Hmm. Tulsa was dominated by two guys, Oral Roberts and Kenneth Hagin. 
and both of them were theologically not where we are. They were aberrant. In fact, I would say Hagen was was heretical in mm. in his views, and Oral was dancing on the edge of of heresy. Mm-hmm. But most of the churches we went to were buying into what Oral or Kenneth Hagen had been preaching. Health Either, and wealth. Yeah, health and wealth. We, we in those days we it was name it and claim it, or mm-hmm. lip it and grip it, or blab it and grab it. Wow. We had all kinds of names for it. <laughs> Confess it, possess it. Um, there was just there were all kinds of of things. Uh, so that was dominant, or it was traditional Southern Baptist churches. Mm. I remember the first time Mom and I went to a church together where at the end of the sermon, the choir just started singing this song that I didn't know, and it was Just As I Am, mm. which apparently they sang every week as their invitation hymn, and everybody was kind of used to this was the rhythm, but I'm a visitor. I'd never heard this song. I'm looking for the words. I don't know where to look it up in the hymnal. And we sing it through twice. And then the pastor just says, you know, I I sense that maybe there's one more person here. And so we sing it through two or three more times. And I'm going, the cafeteria line is getting long. Could we get out of here? So it just this is the altar call. This is yeah, where yeah, and I yeah. I was I grew up in a Presbyterian church. We yeah. did not have altar calls right. in the Presbyterian church, right. so I didn't know any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they greet somebody who is coming by transfer of letter, and I don't know what that means. And yeah. I'm just going, can we get to the cafeteria? <laughs> right. So three years of going to Baptist churches or going to charismatic churches, or we just we could never find what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. And we were about to join a church just because after three years, I thought, we got to join somewhere. We just get the best one we can and join there. And a friend sent us a postcard and said, uh, I know a guy who's thinking about starting a new church, and he'd like to have you over to the house for a homemade ice cream and to talk about the church. Can you explain to our listeners what a postcard is? <laughs> Is that similar to an email or a text? Back in the old days yeah, okay. when you got stuff in the mail. Right. So we went um, we went to the free ice cream thing on yeah. Saturday night. Right. And we listened to a cassette tape. Okay. All right. Yep. That's an ancient form of audio delivery. Yep. And it was a sermon about how every church needed to have three vital experiences. People needed to have a vital experience with God's word a vital experience in fellowship or relationships with other believers, and a vital experience in evangelism, reaching mm. out to other people. And the the guy who was preaching the message said, if you don't have all three of those, and if there's not a balance of those three, you're going to feel like something's wrong in the church. And mom and I drove home that night going, that's the issue. Because mm. we could look back and we could say, this church was really good on evangelism. Yeah but not very relational. This church was good at teaching the Bible, but not very evangelistic. Mm. And we thought if if you could get a church that had the Bible and fellowship and evangelism all happening well, that'd be a good place to start. And who, so who was the pastor? Do you remember? Gene Getz, okay. who started Fellowship Bible Church in Dallas, Texas, back in the late 60s. Oh, wow. And there are a lot of, I think in Denver, there's a fellowship Bible church. There is, yeah. A lot of fellowship churches that have grown out of Gene's work back in the 60s and early 70s. And so we helped start Fellowship Bible Church in Tulsa. We were charter members. I led the music at the church, which meant that I got there on Sunday morning and picked two hymns and said, we'll do these two. (laughs) And the piano player would play them and I would stand up and lead them. That's all we did back those days. 
Um, I preached for the first time in that church when I was 22. Wow. And I still have the tape. No way. And it's pretty embarrassing <laughs> to go back and listen to it. What did you preach on? I preached on the Beatitudes. Okay. Uh, and covered Matthew 5, 1 through 7 or 8, all in one. I guess I went through 10 all in the, that one Sunday. And all I did was go look up a commentary and see what they said and inserted a few stories here and there. And mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. But I knew that I loved the work of the church. And I, I knew that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against God's church. Mm. So we were bought in from the beginning. And every time we would move, job one was where are we going to find a church that we can be a part of? When we got to San Antonio, I found out there was a fellowship Bible church in San Antonio. So I called the pastor and I said, where do you meet? And he said, well, right now we're meeting in an apartment clubhouse. (laughs) So I knew, okay, if we're getting in here, it's ground floor again, starting at the very beginning. But we visited. We loved the fellowship and the teaching, the whole experience. And so we were a part of Fellowship Bible Church in San Antonio for the seven years that we were there. I was an elder there. And then when we got to Little Rock, we were in a couple of different churches before I had a sense eight, almost nine years ago now, mm-hmm. that God was calling us to start something new in Little Rock. And part of the reason for that was and and I think folks at Park will appreciate it because I've been to Park, I've yeah. visited there, and right. I I am grateful when I come and worship at Park that uh, God's Word is as central as it is. That there appear to be real, genuine relationships that are more than just surface relationships, but people really are being intentionally intrusive in one another's lives in a grace-based, redemptive way. And I'm grateful that uh, that I see the things that mark a healthy church, a gospel-centeredness mm-hmm. existing at Park. As I looked around churches in Little Rock and even the churches that we were a part of, um, most of the churches I saw in Little Rock, rather than teaching the Bible in a way that brought in the historical context and really taught you what the Bible is supposed to be all about. Most most people were just teaching themes from the Bible, um, but not really teaching you the Bible. And and Hmm. those that were teaching the Bible seemed to me to be stuck in uh, time warp and Hmm. didn't realize what's going on in the culture today. They they wanted life to be like the 60s or the 70s, and it Hmm. wasn't anymore. Hmm. So we said, we got to help start a church. And I already had a full-time job. But I knew that if you could preach and if you could help lead music, that's what you needed to start a church. And I could do both of those. Right. So the first few months were me leading the worship and me preaching. Yeah. But we tried to get away from that as quick as we could so that. <laughs> so you put down the guitar and then. I'd preach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we didn't want it to be the Bob show every week. Right. But that's just what we had at the beginning. Sure. Uh, maybe there's someone uh, who feels what you just talked about, who is in a city or in a rural area or wherever, and they think there's not a church here that we can feel good about joining. Uh, but we also have a full-time job. And, and uh, w- what would you tell that person or that family about having a full-time job and starting a church? Well, you don't do it unless you really know God's calling you to it. Yeah. Um, 
because there are a lot of wrong reasons to do it. And you don't do it unless you've got co-laborers, other people, other families who would come along and affirm your vision because the church is never a one-man vision. Mm -hmm. It's really uh, a community effort. And so when we started here, there were five or six families that were all saying, yes, we think God is in this. Um, And you're going to need a mix of gifts. It can't just be on one person's Mm -hmm. shoulders. Uh, I, I think you only look at doing something like this if you have exhausted what you feel are all the legitimate opportunities, even to go to, if, if you're in a rural community and there are seven churches there yeah. and you go, man, none of them are what are, are like Park Church. Hmm. Uh, I, I think you look and you say, okay, which one's the best and how might we be able to have a ministry there yeah. that could be effective and how can we pour in? Maybe God's got us here for a season of pouring rather than a season of receiving. Yeah. And maybe you look for ways to receive from outside the church so that you can pour in and serve in the church. Yeah, let me talk to you about that. Or you talk to our listeners about that because there can be a mindset of I need to find a church that that works for me. Right. There can be a consumeristic um, buffet mentality where, you know, I like the burgers, but I don't like the fries. Right. Um, And sometimes that can be legitimate. And other times it can just be a consumeristic mindset. So. How do you walk that balance? I I think you have to look at it this way. You have to be in a situation spiritually where there are ways for you to drink in God's grace through the scriptures being taught. Through You have to be a recipient of that. That's got to be a a common, an an ongoing uh, stream into your life. Mm -hmm. And then there have got to be ways for you to pour out. Yeah. Otherwise, it's stagnant. Yeah. And so you should be asking the question... Can I drink in here and can I pour out here? Mm-hmm. And if you go to a church where you say there the water here is stale or polluted or I just there's nothing I can drink, then I would say, okay, can you get your flow from Christian radio, from podcasts, from listening to stuff mm-hmm. online? Can is there are, are there ways that you can be fed mm-hmm. outside of your local church? Because because I know guys who are good-hearted pastors and not great preachers. Sure. And so if I can get fed from somewhere else and I can come alongside a good-hearted pastor and just say, uh, let me help you with this ministry, that may be what God's got for you for Mm -hmm. a season. Mm -hmm. But I think in your your daily life, you've got to be drinking in and you've got to be pouring out. And church should be an opportunity, should be a place to facilitate both of those. If it's not a place to facilitate both of those, uh, and you don't really have any good options, then say, okay, can I drink in from somewhere else? Can I pour out somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Can we get involved in young life in our community? Or can we mm-hmm. pour out through the soup kitchen? Or can we pour out some other way, do a small group at our house, uh, look for opportunities like that, and just use the church as, as imperfect as it's always going to be, because every church is imperfect. Yep. Every church has got cracks and flaws. When you find the perfect church, as soon as you join it, you ruin it because now you're a member of it. Right. Hypocrisy has entered the church. Right. Uh, so it's it's always imperfect. Look for the, the best opportunity you can find and say, how can I drink in and how can I pour out here? Yeah. So it sounds like you would um, – it's almost church planning as a last resort. I think so. I yeah. think it has to be a clear call from God. Yeah. And I love church planning. I think there's an excitement and a vitality to it. I think there's a, when when God is doing something new, it's a really exciting time for the church. 
but I've also seen people's lives shipwrecked mm. on the rocks of church planting mm. sure. because either they didn't hear clearly from the Lord, they had mixed motives in what they were doing. Mm. Some guys are church planters, and it's more about them than it is about the gospel. All of us have to examine our own hearts when we're looking at something like that and say, is this about me? Mm. And if it is, you run from that. you mm. you got to purge yourself of that because mm-hmm. it can be about you, and it, if it is, it'll kill you. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's I think it's a last resort, and you look for ways to strengthen existing churches first. Mm-hmm. John Bryson said he's never uh, he's never seen a guy who was essentially all the the young guys who come to him and say I want to plant a church. He's never heard from someone else who's done it who said Oh, I wish I would have done it sooner. Mm. Um, they always think, man, yeah, take the time, make sure God's in it, make sure there are people who are are with us and believe in it. Uh, so yeah, that's that's good. Um, and just uh, for programming purposes here, we will link to, uh, if you're in the Little Rock area and you're looking for a church, we'll link to uh, Redeemer Community Church, which is the name of the church that uh, Dad started nine, almost nine years ago. Almost nine, nine years in ago. February. Yeah. Um, so we'll link to that in the show notes if you would like to check it out. Um, and you, in the meantime, found uh, found a little time to write a book. <laughs> Actually, that that goes back before the church got started. Okay. Because The Christian Husband, which is the the book I've written, it's easy to keep track of it when you've only written one. Well, aren't you writing another one? Um, you know, I've dabbled with stuff here and there. And, yeah. and um, actually, I'm working right now on a on an interesting project that involves a screenplay. But I'll tell you more about that mm-hmm. here in just a minute. Uh, That's what in radio we call that a teaser. A teaser. Yeah. 1999, I wrote a book called The Christian Husband. And I wrote it because when I looked at things in my life that got me stirred up and riled up. One of the things that would get me riled up is guys who were not manning up to be godly husbands. Hmm. And you you know me well enough to know that I don't rile up easily. No, you don't. I'm pretty even-tempered. Yeah. But um, I, I'm thinking about a couple that we knew years ago where the husband came home one day and he said to his wife and four kids, I can't be the husband and daddy you need me to be because I'm not healthy myself and I need to go get help. And he packed his bag and he went to get help for himself. And it led eventually to the divorce of the husband and the wife. He didn't get the help he needed. It was the dissolution of that family. Now, that family, by God's grace, protected by God's grace, uh, a lot of those kids have gone on to thrive, and the wife has uh, has flourished. Mm. But I I just remember being angry mm. at a man who would come home and abandon his wife and four kids because he needed to get himself healthy. Mm-hmm. I go, I don't see in Scripture Jesus saying to anyone, look, I'm a little emotionally depleted. So I can't help you today because I, I can't be what you need me to be until I get myself fixed. Mm-hmm. No, it there's a pouring out. Husbands sign up to pour out regularly. They they sign up to be self-sacrificing, to die to self, yeah. and to um, to sacrifice for their wives. And so I sat down to write a book on what's at the core of being a Christian husband. Hmm. And commitment and self-sacrifice are really central to what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Let's let's uh, 
park on that for a minute because the husband's job is to be Christ, uh, and the the wife is the bride, the church, um, and and yet the husband will never be Christ. Right. So, uh, where's I guess how do you walk that line between? Uh, knowing that you've been called to something that you can never do. I guess I, I, I'm thinking about guys who will say, no, I'll just take on more. I'll just take on more. Right. Uh, and then all of a sudden they collapse under the pressure that they put on themselves. Well, I, I think I think you always have to walk in grace, by grace. You always have to be aware that, uh, that yes, you've taken on an assignment that apart from God's grace, you will fail at and and independent of God's grace, which we all are at different points in our lives, you're gonna you're gonna blow it. Yeah. Here's the thing I learned as I was writing the book. I had gone into marriage thinking that my job as a self sacrificing husband was to make sure that your mom was happy every day. Mm-hmm. That if I could keep her happy every day. And if that involves sacrifice on my part, so be it. But as long as she, as long as she was happy, I was laying down my life for her. And we hear that in culture, right? If Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But right? here was the problem. Yeah, her momentary happiness was not always the right thing from a godliness perspective. Sometimes, what made her happy in the moment was not something that was going to make her happy five years from now. Mm -hmm. Russell Moore said in in a video project I worked on called The Art of Marriage, he said, your job as a husband is not to make your wife happy in the moment, but to make a decision that she may not be happy with at this moment, but five years from now she'll look back and say, that was the right decision. Mm -hmm. And we're not always going to do that perfectly, Mm -hmm. but that's our job Mm -hmm. is to try to do that as often as possible. In writing this book, I realized that I was more of a pleaser than a leader. Hmm. And you hear the husband's job being a servant leader. I I was serving, but I was a servant pleaser, not a servant leader. Hmm. And I had to recognize that I thought as long as she was happy, uh, I'd done my job, but I was not leading her in godliness. Hmm. I I was just catering to whatever her whim was. Now, fortunately, she's a godly woman, so she didn't have a whole lot of unrighteous desires that I was catering to. Sure. But I still wasn't thinking of her like my sister in Christ and like a disciple uh, who I could come alongside and, and say, I don't think this is the right. I think this moodiness, instead of saying, I'll go get you a pint of ice cream mm-hmm. to try to solve your moodiness. Mm-hmm. And there are times when getting a pint of ice cream is is short-term therapy. I don't have any – I'll still do it today, right? <laughs> but – Sometimes you need to sit down and say, let me talk to you about what's making you moody mm-hmm. and um, let, let's get to the root of this. And you you help provide discipleship for your wife. I wasn't doing a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted her to be happy with me. Mm-hmm. And writing The Christian Husband was a part of my own working out of leadership is more than just making somebody happy all yeah. the time. Yep. Um, can you think of a time – you talked about making decisions that that might not make mom happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you think about a, a time when you guys disagreed, uh, and and you were wrong, and you went with what mom thought instead of what 
you thought? Because huh. sometimes leadership is that's right is deference. That's right. Uh, here, here's and I I can't think about a specific, but I can. There have been several times when I have thought I think this is the right thing to do, and Mom has done a few things. She said, "Have you prayed about it?" Yeah. And I went, "No, I haven't really prayed about it. <laughs> I'll pray about it. That's good." Yeah. And then there are sometimes when she has stepped in and said, "Well." Have you thought about this and this and this? Yeah. And I thought, no, I really hadn't thought about this. And that does change the equation. Mm-hmm. That's that's good. Okay. We'll, we'll go a different direction. Right. So there have been lots of times yep. where she's helped me think in 360 and helped me see that my impulsive decision that I was going to mm-hmm. make was not going to be the, the right decision. Because I think the ditches that we see guys falling into are either passivity. Right. So... The wife leads the relationship, makes all the decisions. He kind of just, okay, whatever. I write the checks. I'm along for the ride, whatever. Um, or strong arming. Right. And no, it's my way, you know. I'm not listening to you. It doesn't matter what you think or yep. say. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and both are wrong. We have to be loving leaders. We have to be listening leaders. Mm-hmm. I, I When I speak at Weekend Remember Marriage Getaways, I ask guys, think about the guy you work with who, who's your boss. Yeah. What's a good boss? Well, they say a good boss is somebody who who listens to you. A good boss is somebody who uh, who cares about you. A good boss is somebody who has your interest at heart. Now, describe a bad boss. Well, you'll hear it's a micromanager. Well, he he doesn't care. He, mm-hmm. I say, okay. So, what kind of husband are you? Yeah. Because everybody knows what it looks like in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Well, um, somebody we interviewed for Family Life today wrote a book called "Treat Me Like a Customer." And a, a guy who's in sales, and his wife finally said to him one day, "You treat your customers better than you treat better me. Better than you treat your right, right. Treat right. me like a customer." <laughs> right. And there's yeah. there's a lot to that. I will tell you a story. You you probably heard me tell about when Amy came home from church, your sister. Yeah. And uh, the church was going on a, a missions trip to Honduras, and Amy was 15, mm. and she was asking me. I remember she was standing right in front of me saying. The church is taking kids to Honduras this summer, and I'd like to go. Can I go? And your mom was standing behind her going, no, right. you know, shaking her head and no, don't let her go. So I'm standing looking at your sister and looking at your mom and going, somebody's not going to be happy with the right. decision I made. Right. And thinking four years ago, Amy said, if God's calling you to move to Little Rock. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. So I said what we always said when you guys would come and ask us a question. Your mom and I will talk about it. So mom and I will talk about right. it. So we got together and I said, why don't you want her to go yeah. to Honduras? Yeah. And mom said, I don't know anything about hospitals in Honduras. Sure. If she needed medical attention while she was down there, I don't know who the adults are. She's only 15. Right. She can do this two years from now. When she's 17, it'll, it'll be different then. And I said, well, I said, I think 15 is old enough and I'm sure that Things would be okay. We talked about it. We still didn't agree. Mm-hmm. We prayed about it, didn't agree. I said, let's just give it. What's the deadline? I have to know by this time. Amy came home one day from church and she said, um, everybody in my small group is praying that you guys are going to let me go. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to. No, no, this is my decision. Don't get. So finally I went to your mom and I said, okay, you still think we should postpone this. And she said, yes. And I said, I think she should go. I said, but here's what I want to know. If she goes and something bad happens to her, are you going to hold it against me? Uh And mom said, be pretty hard not to. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good. So I Mm. said, 
I'm going to let her go. And mom, to her credit, said, okay, that that's what you think is the right thing to do. And she supported the decision. Hmm. Uh, I prayed like crazy the whole time Amy was down in Honduras. Uh, she came back. Mom would say today that was the right decision. Hmm. It didn't feel right in the moment. Today she would say, yeah, that was the right decision. Mm-hmm. I, I I almost chickened out because I didn't want my wife mad at me for a week. Sure. I didn't want my wife thinking, okay, yeah, she can go to Honduras, but it's going to be a month before we have sex. Right. Which is how, how that can get played out mm-hmm. in a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't think of a time when uh, when you went with your decision and it didn't work out well, huh? Are you saying it all? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm saying that my memory captures other times. You have a biased memory like the rest of us. I do. Uh-huh. Um, okay, you brought up Russell Moore uh, a little while ago, and, and also we can remember an Art of Marriage, which I have seen and attended both, and I'm happy to link to both of those in the show notes. If you need help in your marriage or know someone who does, those are both uh, great resources, so check them out. Uh, Russell Moore uh, has taken some heat in the past few days for his um, non-support of Trump. Yes. Is there anything that you would like to talk about there? You're welcome to just say, nope, I don't want to talk about that. I will just say I have great respect for Russell Moore. (laughs) (laughs) That'll work. (laughs) And let's see, you texted me before we went on here. Have we, have we, we've talked about church planning. We've talked about uh, the Christian husband, millennials and marriage and family. Your your youngest son David uh, was married this past weekend. Yep. And now all the Lapines are off of the market, and uh, and our sister Katie told her friends in uh, my sister Katie, your daughter Katie, told her friends in New York City that she was going to Tulsa to, for her twenty two year old brother and uh, and his twenty year old wife to get married. Yeah. Uh, and they thought she was uh, must be. They thought Arkansas, you know, yeah, only right. in Arkansas, <laughs> probably barefoot people that that do. So, yeah, I, I do think. Now, this isn't just millennials. This isn't just church-going folks. But the the average age for marriage today twenty nine for a young man, twenty seven for a young woman. Okay. Sixty um, percent of those who are getting married today have lived together before they get married, and the vast majority of those who are getting married today uh, have been sexually active before they get married. I think it's in the 80 percentile for women and in the 90th percentile for men who have been sexually active. And this this has been going on for decades, since the 60s, since the sexual revolution of the 60s, uh, which puts us in a place where marriage is um, is not on a good, solid foundation, where the, the biblical understanding of what marriage is supposed to be about, God's design for gender, sexuality, and marriage— is is completely misunderstood. The culture has has bashed against it, and young people growing up in the church um, find themselves at odds with the culture pretty early on if they're going to believe what the church has to say about marriage should be between one man and one woman in a lifetime covenant relationship, and it should be something that uh, you enter into for human flourishing and for human procreation and that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. And by the way, there there are two genders in, in Scripture. There's male and female, and those are the only two that God made. And you do have men who are attracted to other men, but they're not a different gender. They are men who are attracted to men. 
You do have women attracted to women. They're not a separate gender. They're women attracted to women. You have some men who think they feel more like a woman. They're not trans. They are men who feel like women. There are two genders, men and women. So let's park on that real quick. Is that all right? Yeah. I read an article uh, by a guy named Mark Yarhouse on this topic where he he talked about eunuchs in Scripture. We do see eunuchs mentioned. Yes. Um, And and while – I understand that there are, that God made a man and God made a woman, a woman, but we do seem seem to see instances of a grayness. Right. So I'd say a modern day eunuch is a man who has cut off his sexuality because he wants to be faithful to what the scriptures teach. So a eunuch is not a separate gender. Mm-hmm. Now, you'd say, did God didn't make a eunuch. A eunuch made himself. Mm-hmm. So this is a person who would be like a same-sex attracted young man today who would say, I am, for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel, going to cut off my, my sexual uh, activity in order to honor God. He becomes not a self-mutilated eunuch, but he becomes mm-hmm. a... Um, a, a eunuch by choice mm-hmm. in today's culture. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the eunuchs in those days, uh, you know, they, they would do it oftentimes to serve in the court. That that way you can guard the queen if you're a eunuch, right? And so I don't know if those were guys who said, well, I'm, I'm not really attracted to women anyway, so mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's not, that's not a third gender that God made. Sure. There are situations today with intersex people. Yeah. So an intersex person is a person who has a, a deformity, right? And they have both symptoms of, of male genitalia and female genitalia, right? That's a birth defect. Mm-hmm. That's not a third gender. Sure, and but, that, but it can be confusing for people. Certainly, it yeah. can. Mm-hmm. Right, and and I'm it, not I'm not trying to say that it it's not confusing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that the way to resolve that confusion is not say I'll tell you what you're confused. We'll just make up a gender for you. Yep. Instead, we have to say, okay, here's what the Bible says. There are male and female, and beyond that are aberrations of those. And if you think you're something else, yes, that's confusing, but that doesn't mean that we now come back and and shift the standard. But but typically the church's response has been all truth, no love. That's right. So I think what I'm trying to advocate here for for here is uh, compassion along with... Jesus was full of grace and truth. Yeah. And... You're absolutely right. The church's response to any aberration of gender and sexuality has been, this is truth and we don't care what you think and you can burn in hell. Right. I, I'm not a fan of that. Me I don't either. think that's the, the what the Bible teaches. Yep. I also don't think that the all grace approach, which says, okay, you can be whatever you want. And you got popular Christian authors who are saying, well, we think now the Bible may say, say something else. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're finding stuff in scripture to support their view. I don't think that is uh, healthy or good for the church. So we have to find a way to hold to the truth. I, I think of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Yeah. There's a great model. Yeah. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Yeah. And when those two are balanced, I don't condemn you. Yeah. Go and sin no more. Right. Now we're at a good place. Good. We so, got here because we were talking about it. marriage <laughs> and married. gender yeah, and sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just say when it comes to marriage, first of all, the biblical definition is the one that we need to be holding to. Now, we live in a culture where that's not the cultural definition and where uh, there are same-sex couples getting married. If I met a same-sex married couple today, 
Um, I wouldn't rail against them. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't pick up stones. Right. I would just acknowledge that they have. They've gone the way of the culture. They've they've imbibed the spirit of the age. But I wouldn't change my view and say, therefore, I think gay marriage is okay. Or some people have tried to say, well, it's okay outside the church. It's just not okay inside the church. If you're a believer, there's only one kind of marriage. If you're an unbeliever, you can have whatever you want. Well, that's just that's just saying we're going to dismiss the whole definition. I, I don't think that works at all either. I'm concerned that millennials have grown up in a confusing age. And they brought the confusion into the church, and they're trying to find a way to have it both both ways. Mm. Uh, I don't think you can. I think you have to come around and say, this is what the Bible teaches on marriage and gender and sexuality. And we have to figure out how we hold on to that full of grace and truth. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Um, and if you want to listen to more on that, uh, I think it's episode two of this podcast is with uh, Wesley Hill, uh, who's been a very uh, helpful voice on uh, what it is like to uh, be homosexual and be a Christian and uh, remain true to what God's design uh, is. So check that out if you are interested in more on this topic. And his book, Washington Waiting, is now out in a revised and updated edition, mm, which I just nice. got the other day because I'm a fan of Wesley's. Okay, good. What else? Okay, so there was one thing we teased. Do you remember what we teased? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was it? Was, it was uh, your screenplay. Working on a screenplay. Yes. So I, one of the things I've gotten involved in doing here at Family Life is producing the Art of Marriage video series and then the Stepping Up video series for men. Uh, this was new to me because I'd been in radio my whole career, so video was a, a new era for me. But I knew we wanted to do something that would be uh, not just talking head video, but as as we got together for the first project, I said, I want to do something that um, kind of feels like Sesame Street meets Saturday Night Live <laughs> and, and take a theme and explore it a lot of different ways with a lot of different elements and have some of it be funny and have some of it be serious and dramatic. And so that's what we tried to do on the first two series that we produced. Well, I'm working right now on a series on parenting. Okay. Uh, so that you and EA will have something to watch and learn how to raise my grandchild Yeah. Uh, the way I think. No, it's not the way I think. This is the key. We're going around and interviewing a whole bunch of people. Yeah. I've talked to uh, Brian and Corey Loritz. I'm going to be talking to Alistair Begg. I'm going to be talking to Kevin DeYoung, Elise Fitzpatrick and her daughter, um, Tim and Darcy Kimmel, lots of folks. So you're going to hear in this series a whole lot of voices, but they're going to be voices that pretty much resonate around the same themes. Dennis and Barbara Rainey, of course, will be uh, the glue for this whole series as we put it together. But when we sat down to to uh, come up with the idea for Art of Parenting, which is probably not what it'll be called at the end of the day, but it's right. our, our parenting series. Okay. And too many URL issues with Art uh-huh. of Parenting. So when we sat down to, to to brainstorm it, I said, what I'd love to do is I'd love to tell a story through all six sessions of the art or all six sessions of, of the parenting videos Yeah, and have this story be the first 10 to 15 minutes of the 30 minute video. And you saw the movie Boyhood? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it traces that boy from when he's seven years old to when he graduates from high school. Yeah. Well, we don't have... 50 years to trace parents from when their first child is born to their 50th wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. But we decided that's the kind of storytelling we wanted to do. So we've written a screenplay 
Um, I say we because there are a couple other people who got involved in this project with me. Um, And the screenplay starts with a young couple. She's 20. He's 25. They're not married. They've just found out she's pregnant. They're trying to figure out what to do. And it takes them from there to the point where they're at their 50th wedding anniversary and their four kids show up to give a tribute to Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And we trace kind of the pivotal moments of their life as parents over the course of of the six series that we get together. Um, I had the idea for this. I bounced it off Dennis Rainey, who said he thought it was a good idea. I called Alex Kendrick, who uh, has been involved in a number of of films that have done well at the box office. War Room was the latest film he's done. He's both writer and director and an actor in that film. And I said, here's what I have an idea for. What do you think? He said, I like the idea. He said, we we have a young man in North Carolina that we'd like to help mentor as a director. Hmm. And so the three of us have been working together on this project. And we are in the middle of casting right now. And we will start shooting in a few weeks. Wow. And um, hopefully in in two thousand late two thousand seventeen early two thousand eighteen we'll have our six our six episodes that we're going to wait till we're all done and then see if they can be tied together into one extended feature film and whether there's box office potential for that. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, that's a long shot. I'm not holding my breath on that, but it would be cool. It, it'd be a god thing if God does that yeah that's everything's a god thing it is oh that's thank you yeah yeah yeah, um a parents sorry i can't help myself a parents listening right now and they're saying i would love to check that out is there a way they can be notified that because that's a year from now that's yeah um they can uh we're going to start shooting some little video clips that are like what's going on should but they I, I follow don't you a, on Twitter? What, what, okay. be, that's the best thing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm FLT Bob okay. on Twitter. That's my Twitter handle. That's probably the best way. And when we post these video clips, we'll have them up there. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we'll link to that Twitter account in the show notes as well. We normally do some rapid fire questions here at the end. Uh, best thing you've read or watched lately? Um, best thing I've read or watched lately. Uh Mom and I are starting to get caught up on This Is Us. Okay. We didn't start the season with that, so we're trying to get caught up. And I'm pretty impressed with the writing okay. on This Is Us and Haven't the storytelling. Yeah. So that's worth checking out. And most of my reading is commentaries in preparation for next week's sermon. <laughs> so the commentary on James I just finished was really good. Okay. But but when you're on an airplane, you sometimes read fiction. I can't think of anything there. Uh, the, the last fiction I read was a book by David Halber. It wasn't fiction; it was nonfiction. David Halberstam, who's a historian, wrote a book called 1964, and it's the story of the World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the New York Yankees. Oh. I was eight years old, living in St. Louis, oh, cool. taking my transistor radio to school so I could listen to the games. I dressed up as Stan Musial for Halloween that year, so uh, it kind of ran deep for me. But it was very penetrating uh, in terms of understanding the civil rights movement mm. because the Cardinals were an integrated team and the Yankees were not. Okay. And the Cardinals understood the dynamics of integration better than the New York Yankees did at that point. And it's one of the reasons they won the series that year. And honestly, I read that on the heels of watching O.J. 
Made in America. Mm, yeah. And The People versus O.J. Simpson. I watched both of those this year. Yeah. And and all all of that was very helpful in giving me a, a fresh perspective on mm. the civil rights movement and race relations and mm. where we are today and yeah. and how we deal with that. Yeah. That's good. Um well, maybe it's commentaries. Nerdiest thing you're into right now. <laughs> the nerdiest thing I'm into. Something where somebody asks you about it and you go, ooh. Like, I didn't really want to tell anybody <laughs> that I do that. Um, or that I like that or that I eat that. or Lots of words with friends. Okay. Does that count? I mean, I'm playing words with That's friends. That's still a thing, huh? It, <laughs> I thought that. No, no, no. no I, yeah? It's still a thing, okay. and I'm still pretty dang good uh, at yeah, it. Yeah, I believe right. that you are. Yeah. Uh, best meal you've had? Like in the last day? In the last, I don't know, this month. The best meal I've had this month. This year. Oh, okay. This year yeah. would definitely be uh, the hamburger at Chris Madrid's, which uh-huh. I got a chance to have. You Tell know. us about Chris Madrid's. Chris Madrid's is a hamburger place in San Antonio. Okay. It's at Blanco and Bassey, the corner of Blanco, or just actually Hollywood and Bassey, just two blocks south of Blanco and Bassey. Oh, now we know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, it's, it's a hole-in-the-wall place. But it's fresh ground beef with uh, with tortilla chips, onions, refried beans, and cheddar cheese over the top of the whole thing. Wow! It's called the the uh, Macho Burger. Okay, and it's it's awesome. Okay, my favorite hamburger in America. If you're ever in San Antonio, go to uh, Chris Madrid's. Although that hamburger you took me out for, yeah, where was that? Yeah, yeah, uh, Denver listeners, old major. Is uh, it turns into the Royal Rooster for lunch, and it's open from eleven to two, I think Monday through Friday. Best cheeseburger in town, hands down, and the fried chicken sandwich they is were amazing. Both yep. really good. Yep. Yeah, that was so great. Check out the Royal Rooster. We love food in the Lapine family. And, Denver, Denver uh, Biscuit Company was pretty good this oh, year yeah. too. Yeah, oh yeah, the it. Franklin. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that'll do it. Thank you guys uh, as always for listening and. Uh, don't forget to uh, hop into iTunes to subscribe to the show. You'll get notified when we post a new episode. And while you're there, it would be super helpful if you could rate and review the show. That'll help other people find it. And as always, uh, feel free to drop me a line at james at parkchurchdenver.org with any thoughts, questions, concerns, things you like about the show, uh, guests that you would like to see on the show, uh, really anything that comes to mind. We would love to hear from you. And uh, let's go home. What do you say? Okay.